All right, I'm glad I don't have to do that on Sunday morning. It takes too long. So, uh, Take your Bibles and turn to the sixth chapter of, of the Gospel of John. I put upon the board uh, a passage that is not, it actually is not a part, it's in John, but it's not a part of the, of the sermon series itself that I'm going to be doing. We start a new sermon series tonight. We'll be looking at the seven statements of Jesus in the book of John, the, in the Gospel of John, the I Am Statements. Okay, but in the last part of the eighth chapter, and and this is this becomes the essence to me of the Gospel of John. That is, John sets himself apart from the other Gospels in this sense. His main emphasis is to make sure that those who would be be followers of Jesus Christ would 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 know that Jesus Christ is God. He's not merely one sent from God, although he is sent from God. And he's not merely a man, although he is a man. He is God incarnate. And as you study the book of John, you notice that he begins with, before anything began, Jesus already was. He's the eternal word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We call that the incarnation. Uh, He talked about how he came to his own. His own did not receive him. He goes on to talk about what it is to be born again as he talks to Nicodemus in the third chapter uh, of this book. And then he, and then he moves into uh, where we'll be tonight in the sixth chapter, which if you read it and you get to the end of it, it's a very difficult chapter for some people. Because he's going he's to call himself something. And uh, he's going to use uh, language to help us understand the essence of who he eternally is. And he does this elsewhere. Elsewhere he's, he's called the rock and he's called the sure foundation and, and these things. And, and tonight he's going he's gonna to be called the bread of life. So in this eighth chapter though, as you get to this chapter, and I would encourage you to read that chapter because it, it, it really is the, the conflict, if you will, that Jesus has with the religious leaders of his time. They did not have any comprehension of who he was. They could not see him for who he was. And they really had a problem when he started to tell them who he was. And he talked about Abraham. It's interesting that he he talked about Abraham in in such a way that they they looked at him and said, Wait a minute, You're, you're about 30 years old. How could you know Abraham? And his response was, before Abraham was... He didn't say, I existed, like we might say, or I was there, and they would probably think, well, you're delusional. But he chose to use the I am, which is more than just a statement, I am. It is the eternal name of God in that passage that he chose to use, which means the eternal name of God, which sometimes we translate Yahweh, the I am, it, it means, it literally means, boy, it's hard to say what it means because it's eternal, but it means... I am, I always was, and I always shall be. And when Jesus used that name, they clearly, if you read that in the 8th chapter, they clearly knew what he was saying there. It wasn't just a statement, was, I, I was there. It was, he used the name of God, and look at what, what's it, what they begin to do. They become very upset with him. They start tearing their clothes and stuff, and, and, and they, and, and because he claimed to be God. And they knew that. Okay, now that being true, and I hope as, I'm going to say this: if you're a born again believer, you believe that. Okay, so I hope you believe it. Okay, that being true, that Jesus Christ is the great I am. Now, through this gospel, he uses the I am to describe what he is in our life because he is the great I am. 
In other words, the things that we're going to talk about as we go through this can only come about because he is the great I am. Nobody else, no other human being can promise to be what Jesus, is, Jesus promises to be for us in this gospel. As we begin that tonight, even looking at the claim that he is the bread of life. So, go over to the 6th chapter if you're not already there. And we're going to look specifically at verses 35 through 48 for our, for our uh, message tonight. But uh, because it is 35 through 48, that tells you there's 34 verses before you get to verse 35, right? So, so in that sixth chapter, the sixth chapter begins with John recording for us that, that Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is an amazing miracle of God. Because, you know, he did that with just a few loaves of fish. No, not a few loaves of fish. A few loaves of bread. So that would be a miracle. A few loaves of fish and a couple of... No, anyways. A few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And how do you feed that many people? And the liberals would say this. Well, this wonderful young man came and, and he was willing to share his lunch. And all these selfish people saw how magnanimous this young man was. And they got filled with guilt. So they all brought out the food they, that they had hidden that they brought. Well, the Bible doesn't quite record it that way. What we have is God doing a miracle. Jesus doing a miracle. He feeds 5,000. And when he's done, there are 12 basket loads left over. There's more left over than when he began. I love that thought. With Jesus, there's always left more left over than, than when he begins. And he begins with far less than, than we think. You know, he, he doesn't need a lot. He just needs some willingness on our part. So he feeds the 5,000. These people are amazed at what happens. It's a miracle. Okay? So uh, that happens. It's followed by where he records that, that he walks on, on, the, on the Sea of Galilee. Again, no one ever did that before. So they see these miracles. Now, in a message this morning, I talked, made an inference that, that uh, when we talked about Elijah and, and after the, the conflict with Baal, the prophets of Baal were done, then we have the people making that declaration, the Lord, he is God. Remember that from this morning? Anybody remember this morning? Okay. Okay. Some of you do, some of you don't. So, and what I said was, my, my view of that was, they were responding to an event. Because before the event happened, Elijah asked him the question. You know, he said, if God, if God is God, follow him. If Baal be God, follow him. But you can't, you can't, you can't halt between two decisions. You've got you you to make up your mind. And the Bible says they didn't say anything. They were silent. After we go through the whole event, at the end, then they're willing to say, God is God, or the Lord, he is God. So what I would say to you is, like so many people, they responded to an event. They didn't respond to God, they responded to an event. They saw a miracle, they saw something uh, miraculous, and, 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 and uh, as I said this morning, they saw which way the wind was blowing, and they said, okay, God is God. But they weren't willing to say that before the miracle. Now, in the sixth chapter here, bless you, Jesus, Jesus says, well, it's recorded for us, the feeding of 5,000, it's recorded for us to walk on the water. And then he begins to say, you're willing to follow me because you see, you've seen these things. And in a very real way, he was basically saying, you're willing to follow me because you've seen the events. And there's a lot of people that just want to see Jesus as a miracle worker. They don't want to follow him as a disciple. They don't want to follow him as, as their Lord and, and, their, and their master. They want, they, they, want to, they want to jump from event to event. And so Jesus 
takes them to the rest of the sixth chapter, and by the time it gets to the sixth chapter, they say, at the end of the sixth chapter, they say, Who can receive these teachings? They're too difficult. When, it, when at the beginning, because he fed the 5,000, he walked on water, everybody wants to follow him. But then when he begins to say, This is what it means to follow me, they say, Who, who could do these things? You're asking, you're asking too much. We just want you to do what you do, and we can cheer you on from the sideline type thing. Well, in the midst of that, we have his teaching on the bread of life. And the reality, as he teaches about this, about that he is all that we need as his followers. So let's begin reading tonight at verse 35. Here's what's recorded for us. It says, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that, that, that of all that he has given me, I should, not lose, I should lose nothing, but should raise up in the last day. Excuse me, i, I got to read it again. But shall raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 41 now. The Jews then complain. <laughs> well, there's a surprise, right? <laughs> so They complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourself. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. This this is this is begins to move into a deeper place. I remind you that that people like movements, people like personalities, they like cares, charismatic leaders, they like people to uh, to come along who can come along and who can, can can stimulate them emotionally and sometimes even spiritually and, and 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 people respond to that. But every one of those things always runs its, runs its course and leaves you wanting at the end. I would say, too, that's what religion does. Religion, for a while, may satisfy you, but it will always leave you wanting. Now, Jesus chose to speak of himself in this passage as bread. In the scripture, let's talk about bread for a little bit. Where do you find bread in the scripture? Going back to the Old Testament, where do you, where do you first find, I would say, in a major sense, bread in the Old Testament? Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> You're nice to huh? with his people. Well, I, let me let me just say. I'll just say it because there's a whole bunch of examples. Let me so you so you get where I'm going. And when Moses was given instructions for the tabernacle in the holy place, what was required to be put out there on the table? We call it what do you call it, the showbread or the shoe bread or or like that. 
which represents something. You know, why do they put loaves of bread out there on the table and stuff? There's a reason for that. There is a reason where it speaks of, once again, the one who would eventually... Everything in the Old Testament is a picture of the one who is to come. Okay? In the, in the New Testament, you have one of the temptations of Christ was for hunger. And his response was, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Interesting, if you pull that all together with what we know about Christ, I, I, I love this. He says he is the bread of life. But it all, the Bible also says that he is the word of God. And here we're going to find out that he being the word of God and the bread of life, he is the one who satisfies completely. What do we need bread for? It is the staple of life, is it not? It is, when we talk about bread, we talk about the staple of life. It, is, it, it, speaks of, it, it speaks of that which we need to have nourishment in our bodies in order that we might sustain life. So Jesus chooses to use this, this staple for pretty much every civilization has some type of bread. That becomes their main staple of life. And he, and, he, and he uses this as an analogy to speak of who he is, the great I am, who he is in the life of those who are his followers. He said, I am the bread of life. And when he talks about this, remember that we're talking about the John's emphasis is the incarnate Christ. Well, when I say incarnate Christ, what do I mean? I mean the eternal God, eternal God who took on the flesh of his own creation and dwelt among us. And so the, the incarnate Christ, and, and this is why some of these people had difficulty with them that day. How can you claim to be who you say you are, but we know you are the son of Joseph. We know you're 30-something 30, 30 years old. How can you claim to be these things? You're, you, may be, you may have just walked on water and you may have just turned uh, 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 some fish and some loaves into bread by sleight of hand or even by a miracle. But you're certainly not the one who came down from heaven. Because that's an impossibility. Yet I remind you that John begins this wonderful book by saying that's exactly who he is. He is the Word of God who took on the flesh of His own creation. And it says, and He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten, the word begotten means one and only, of the Father. And so He is God who came in the flesh. But, but again, and we'll get to this in a few months, they couldn't see that. But what He wanted them to see, as He speaks of it there in verse 35, and then once again, as, as we close out where He says, I am the bread of life, He wants them to see that when he speaks of himself as the bread of life, he's talking of, uh, about himself as being the one who can completely satisfy. If we eat a piece of bread now, the, the time is going to come not too, in the not-too-distant future, we're going to need another piece of bread. Uh, we've got to get our three squares a day, or whatever that is. Uh, we, gotta, we, gotta, we have to have food. And food runs its course. And we have to replenish that food in our system in order to sustain life. Now Jesus moves beyond what we understand bread to be, that is nourishment for the body, but nourishment that has to be given over and over and over again. And he speaks of himself here in verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. And he says, he who comes to me, what's he say? Shall never hunger. And he who, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. 
You remember, that's very similar to what he said to the woman at the well, right? We may talk about her later on. But that's what he said. He said, if you, if you drink of the water I'm about to give you, you will never ever thirst again. So Jesus is speaking of himself as the eternal sustenance that we need as followers of Christ. That once you have received him, once you have received that bread, you don't continue to have to receive the bread. It is, it is eternal in you. And if you carry that analogy out a little bit further, we we are not saved one time and get saved over and over and over and over again. How many times are you saved if you're genuinely saved? You are saved one time. Once and for all, that salvation, that act of God happens in your life. You don't have to be saved over and over and over again. And the truth is, when you receive Jesus, you don't receive just a part of what you need from God. When you and I receive Jesus, we receive everything we need from God. Whether or not we recognize that, whether or not we walk in it, whether or not we submit to it, that's a whole other matter. But the reality is, Jesus doesn't come piecemeal to us. He doesn't, he doesn't come part, part way to us. When, when we are biblically saved, we are completely saved. And everything that we, that we will ever need, we will have in Jesus. And he doesn't come and go. He stays there. So he is the bread, as he draws this picture of himself, he is the bread that completely and, I would say, eternally satisfies. You ever thought about eternal life and when it begins for us? There's a lot of people that think eternal life begins when you cast off this flesh and go into, into heaven. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? Actually, the Bible teaches that, that at the moment you respond to the call of the Holy Spirit and you are born again, that's when eternal life begins for you. And Jesus says, he who believes in me, he said, he, they will never die. So the promise of eternal life is at that point. So at the moment we receive the bread of life, as it were, we have what we need to sustain us. Not for a moment, not for a week, not for a year, but for eternity. You'll never hunger again. In other words, once you've received the bread of life, you don't need anything else. And of course, Paul, the apostle, like he carries this on and he gets a little bit more specific, particularly if you read the book of Colossians, he gets very specific. He says, it, basically he says, it's Christ plus nothing else. And he goes on to say, it's not Christ plus man's philosophy, it's not Christ plus religion, it's not Christ plus good works, it's, it's Christ plus nothing else. You know, and it, it, this 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 thought carries to so many areas of of, of 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 what we've been promised in the Scripture. Go back again to salvation. What Christ has given you in His finished work is a done thing. It's finished. It, nothing else needs to be done, and it can't be done more than one time. It's done. Okay. Think about once you are saved and, and, and what you, you and I need uh, as, as followers of God, as disciples of Jesus Christ. It's all found in who Jesus Christ is. So we receive Christ for salvation and we, and we live in Christ, as it were, as his followers. Again, you don't get saved and then move to the place where a lot of religious people move to, to a place where you try to be the best Christian you can be, try to do everything that you can do. But you move to a place where you, where you understand, for salvation I was completely dependent upon Christ. Amen? And for the Christian life, I'm still completely dependent upon Christ. He's all that I need. You don't have to add anything else to it. 
Someone say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? That's a separation we make sometimes that the Bible doesn't necessarily make. How does God work through us? Certainly through the Holy Spirit. But it is Jesus who said, I will send my Spirit. It's an act of what He has done to us because we belong to Him. It's part of what He has given us to sustain us and give us all that we need to be everything that He has designed for us to be. It's a wonderful thing when you realize it's just Jesus. It's a wonderful thing that in Him we are complete. We are made perfect. In Him we have everything that we will ever need. And we don't have to go out looking for other things. I said this morning in a sermon, the world has nothing to offer us. And, and that's not from a place of pride. That's a, that's a place from, from realizing that everything we need, we have in Christ Jesus. And it's not that the world has what we need. The church needs to begin to see that, that we have, because of what Christ has done in us, we have what the world needs. Okay? You know, and, and for us... When, when you start getting this in, in a very practical sense, you go back to to, uh, to verses where where he he says stuff like this. He says, "But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness." And what? What's he say after that? And all these other things shall be added unto you. What he's saying to his his followers is, "I've got this. I've taken care of this. I am all that you need. So focus on who? Focus on Him." For, for he is the bread of life. I don't know that we quite believe this in practice. Theologically, I think we'd all say, Amen. But it's a whole other thing to walk in the kind of faith where we really live a life where we actually believe this, that, that Jesus is all that, all that we need. Uh, and, and nothing else has to be added to it. And, and I, I, don't, I don't know through the, through the generations if the church has been very good with this passage, at least in application. And teaching people how, 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 to, how to, to know what this says. You say, well, it seems so simple just to say that Jesus is everything. You know, many things in the Bible are very simple in principle. The rub for us comes in, okay, now how do I take this biblical principle and live it? Because it grates against who we are. We think God needs our help. We think Jesus needs our help. We think he's in, in, inadequate. In practice, I'm saying, not in the statement of our beliefs. He reminds us, reminds him here that he is everything. He is the bread of life. So, verse 36 through 40, he goes on and he tells us that believing in the incarnate Christ, the one who is the bread of life, is the only way to receive the gift of everlasting life. Now, later on, we will do the study where he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. Okay, But once again, what he says here, and he reminds us here, is that salvation, eternal life, everlasting life, is only given to those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Those who have believed in Jesus Christ. Now, for a lot of years, we talked about, we use terminology like accepting Christ in our heart and stuff. And, and sometimes that, that becomes a, a, a word picture that's very hard for people to grasp. But if we, could, if we could really talk, use biblical terms where he talks about believing and how God brings about that believing in us. To put our faith in believing, put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ because of who he is and because of what he's done. John, Jesus says, and I started to say John, but notice that John is recording Jesus' words here. So, so Jesus says, says here, uh, he says, I have said these things to you who have seen me, 
and I and you know who I am, but you still don't believe. That's what he says there in verse 36. And in verse 37, he brings in this biblical understanding that you just can't run away from. And I remind you that, that it says something to us. And here's what it says to us. It says that no man came, or no person has come to Jesus because they were spiritually superior to others and they got it. No person comes to Jesus because they're intellectually superior to others and they figured it out. Okay? No, nobody does. The very ability to know who Jesus is is an act of God toward us. In other words, if God did not reveal who Jesus is to us, there would be no way we would ever, first of all, know who he is, and there would be no way we'd ever have any desire at all even to come to him. We would do a lot like what these Jewish guys did with Jesus that day. It's cool to hang around with Jesus. It's fun to see him feed 5,000. It's amazing to see him walk on the water. All these things are, are great. But notice, again, when you get to the end of this chapter, when he calls them to a place of fault, genuinely following him, most of them left him. Okay? It was too hard for them. So Jesus says here, All that my Father has given to me, <laughs> come to me. And the one who comes to me, what's he say? I will not cast out. God does not play salvation games with people. If a person comes to him in sincerity of heart, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, through his son Jesus Christ, the Bible says God will receive them. Now you and I, you say, I want you to understand, that's important for us to know. Because as we share the gospel and we see the Holy Spirit working in someone's life, how can we say, you know what, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what I want you to know is that, that if you do that, that you can have everlasting life. We can't with integrity tell somebody that if we don't believe it ourselves. Okay? We have to believe that if the Holy Spirit brings somebody to, to the place where they're ready to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we believe that's an act of God in their life. And if they respond to the call of God when it comes to salvation and trust Him as, as Lord and Savior, we need to be able to say, if you do that, according to the Bible, your sins are forgiven and you have everlasting life. And we can say that to people, not because it is a Baptist doctrine or a, or, or a church doctrine, as it were. We can say it because the Bible says it. Okay? Verse 30, 38 goes on to say, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus reminds them as he walked in the flesh, he was there to do the will of the Father. Now again, here, here comes a... They don't want to deal with... I want to say, they don't want to deal with what probably the Holy Spirit is saying to their hearts right now. Okay, it's kind of like a, a Nicodemus moment. Now, I, I personally believe, and many I think do, Nicodemus came to salvation later on. It talks about him, I believe. Okay, but when he was first confronted with with the understanding of being born again and Jesus talking in terms that he, that he couldn't get, and, and, and again, I believe the Holy Spirit was working on Nicodemus's heart at that time because what Jesus was doing that and stuff. But J Nicodemus run where a lot of people run, and you'll probably notice this as you share the gospel with people. They will always run sometimes even to the absurd or to a thing that they cannot grasp. They'll change the subject is what I want to say to you. Hmm. Happened all the time. Okay, Nicodemus did it. Well, how can a guy be born again? Nicodemus, you just missed the last 15 minutes of what Jesus was saying to you. Okay, 
And here we have this where they're going to get upset and they're going to say, well, you know, um, you've never seen God. How can you say that you've come down from heaven? You're the son of Mary and Joseph. So when Jesus makes this statement in verse 38, it becomes a statement of contention for them that they cannot grasp. But the point is, when we talk about Jesus, and I want to say this again, when we talk about Jesus and we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it, the gospel is who he is and what he's done. And there are some religious groups that actually have a good, what I want to say, a good theology about who Jesus is, but, but their theology when it comes to what Jesus has done is lacking. And both of them are, are important. It is important who he is. That he is eternal God. That he is the incarnate God, the incarnate Christ. That's important. That's why his virgin birth is important. That's why his sinless life is important. That's why his, 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 his substitutionary death on the cross is important. That's why his, his resurrection from the dead is important because of who he is. And if he isn't who he is, then his death upon the cross is meaningless for us when it comes to our salvation. Because I remind you, on that day that he died, there were two other men that died with him. But their death didn't, didn't affect anybody. Maybe their family was heartbroken over it, but other than that, it had no effect on anybody. But Jesus is dead because of who he is. But, so that's part of the gospel that you can't get away from. They couldn't grasp this here. You'll read that here. They couldn't grasp it. When he says, I've come down from heaven, they have some real issues. How can you say you've come down from heaven? They don't want to believe him for who he, who he is. Which John tells us in the first chapter, he is the incarnate Christ. Okay? But then people have sometimes have issues with what he's done. Okay, so they say, okay, I can believe that, that Jesus is who you say he is, but I don't know if I buy that virgin birth thing, and I don't know if I buy that, that sinless life thing, and I don't know if I buy that death upon the cross thing, and I don't know if I buy that resurrection thing. Well, if you deny all those things, then you're denying the gospel. But they both are, are part of it. That's what I'm saying to you. That's why I think, you know, Jesus could have just skirted around this issue without causing them, you know, heartburn over this. But he didn't. He made a statement that he knew would bug them. That they could not receive from, 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 from the context of their own spiritual or their own religious uh, uh, look on things. I think it's wonderful that Jesus didn't come just to affirm a religion. And I would say this, I don't think Jesus ever came to establish a religion. Jesus came to reveal himself to mankind and to reveal the Father and to take us from a place from death unto life to a place where we could have a relationship with God which was impossible for us to have by any means a complete relationship with God. And you think about when he talks here about being the bread that sustains and we go back again to the Old Testament system everything in the Old Testament system that the Jewish people had to do had to be done over and over and over again. Even the bread we talked about had to be replaced because it would become stale and fresh bread had to be brought in. The sacrifices in the tabernacle had to be done over and over again. Even the main sacrifice on the Day of Atonement every year had to be done over and over and over again. But once Jesus came and once Jesus died, never again would it have to happen. For he's the bread that sustains us completely. So he says here, again in verse, verse 38, he came down from heaven, verse 39, he said, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should, not lose, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. Now here's a wonderful thing. 
Part of who he is is, is, is found in, in the promise of that terminology, everlasting life. Biblical salvation, listen to me, biblical salvation is always eternal salvation. Biblical salvation is not temporal salvation. You're not saved today and lost tomorrow. If you are genuinely saved, if you are biblically saved, you are eternally saved. Because your salvation is not in your hand. Look at what, how Jesus puts it here. He said, all that my Father has given me, I will not lose any. He didn't say, he's not talking about us, because our salvation, even after you've been saved, it's not up to you and I to hold on to him. After you and I have been saved, he continues to hold on to us. And he's not going to lose any of his own. I would say to you, it's impossible for him to lose his own. That's what he says here. And we talk about that as being, being, having assurance of our salvation. Aren't you glad that you have a God that's able? That doesn't let us slip through his fingers? That doesn't misplace us? What I'm finding out as I get older and older, that I misplace more things every day. I don't know, is this happening to any of you where you walk in the room knowing you're going to do something and time you get there, it's you forgot why you're doing it? And then you got to walk back in the I tell you what, tonight, three times, three times I made trips over to the office until I finally got everything. And not because I had too much in my arms. You get over there and say, well, it's a nice office. I need a piece of gum or something like that. Our God's not like that. He, he, he is able. And, and he, Jesus says he, he will not lose any. That's the promise that we have. And then in verse 40 he says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last days. That's the promise that we have. That's the promise. That, that if you believe in Jesus, you have everlasting life. As you notice here, it doesn't say everybody that's good, everybody that keeps all the right things, everybody who does all the right things. He says those who believe in him. And it is God who brings that place of belief. But that, it really, you say again, that seems too simple. And that's what religion does. Religion comp- uh, complicates this whole thing. But, but it's not a small thing, if you think about it, to get to that place where you're, wet, where you're really ready to surrender yourself to God and say, I trust you. Okay? But he does say that when you do that, when you come to that point where you respond to the Holy Spirit and you do that, he says what your gift, the gift of God that is given to us through Jesus Christ, is the gift of everlasting life. And John likes to use that terminology. He likes to remind us of that in his gospel here. Verse 41 through 46, very quickly. He says, he reminds us that the ability to believe in the incarnate Christ is by God. It is never by human understanding alone. And he talks about this, and he begins by, by, by the Jews saying, how do you say that you are the bread which came down from heaven? And then they say, you're Jesus. You're the son of Joseph. You're the son of, son of Mary. Uh, we know who your father is. We know who your, who your mother is. How can you say, I've come down from heaven? And what was Jesus' response? Quit murmuring. They're murmuring. Can't figure this out. See, and that's what they're trying to say. We can't figure this out. We can't figure out this. We know who your mom and your dad are. So, so you, can't, you can't convince us. And you notice what Jesus doesn't do? He personally does not try to convince them. 
Now, how many of you have been taught through the years, one way or another, that personal evangelism is convincing someone to believe in Jesus Christ? Many of the approaches that you see today are built upon that, on the need for you to convince somebody that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I would say to you, you can't. That doesn't mean that God can't use you and cannot use your words and cannot use your willingness. He does. That's how He does it. But there's only one who can convince. There's only one that can bring a lost person to the realization that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is the one who died for their sin, that if they put their trust and their faith and trust in Him, that their sins can be forgiven, they can have everlasting. Only one can do that. And I find it interesting that even if, read it, read through the New Testament, read through the just the four Gospels. In the ministry of Jesus, you do not find him getting in someone's face and trying to convince them that he is who he is. You find him sharing with them. You find him declaring the eternal truth of who he is. You find him, him telling them, if you do believe, here's what will happen. You find that, you find that but you don't find him... I want to say, just continuing going at people, trying to convince them to change their mind. And, and this passage here, it, where he speaks to these, to these would-be followers, it, 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 it is a classic passage where Jesus tells them, basically, it's not a matter of your mind being changed or your mind being convinced by, by a statement that somebody made, even a statement that he makes. Though that statement is eternally true. So what does he say? How, how does this happen? So he says, do not murmur. Verse 40, 44 answers that. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. And that's a statement of fact. And someone says, amen, I knew Calvinism was the way. <laughs> then, then we can, anyways, we can deal with some issues where we talk about, but you have to genuinely respond. I'm always interested when it comes to these isms we come up with. These theological systems that many times we create, mankind creates, to fit perfectly our little scope of things. And understanding that, that whether you're dealing with Calvinism on one end or Arminianism on the other, other end, they both are man-made theologies trying to understand the eternal truth of God. And you can build a theology. Both of those guys did. Arminius did, and John Calvin did. They built, built theologies on how they viewed. But neither one of them, as far as I'm concerned, are complete. Neither one of them deal with the, the fullness of what the, what, the, what the Scripture teaches us. Because it's clear that mankind has a legitimate choice to make. It's clear. It's clear that we can grieve, that we can resist, that we can, we can quench the Holy Spirit. All those things are clear. But it's also clear, as he says here, that no man can come to him, nobody can come to him except the Father call them. Which again ought to be something that we, we need to be reminded about where people say, you know what, I'm just going to wait and see if what all you Christians said was true. And, and when, if I see all these things are true, then I'll trust Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Again, I remind you, you know what? You can't come just because you decide to come. If the Holy Spirit's not at work in your life, you're not going to come. If the Holy Spirit's not calling you, you're not going to come. That's exactly what he says here. No one can come. No one. And I believe what he means. No one can come unless the Father calls them. But if the Father calls him and they come, what will he do? He will raise them up on the last days. 
And it's interesting, he uses an Old Testament passage in verse, in verse 45 out of Isaiah, where he actually says, I like how this, this one, he says, And they shall be taught by who? By God. They shall be moved by God. They shall be brought by God. They shall be given understanding. When he talks about taught, it means they will be given understanding by God. Erica. Well, I'm, I'm confused. Are, are you talking about people that aren't Christians? I'm talking about anybody. Okay. But doesn't God say that he sent his son for everybody? Yes. He did. When we talk about, when we talk about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it is the sacrifice for the sin of all mankind. But only those who will respond will know the forgiveness of their sin. And only those who God calls can respond. Okay, what do you mean by God calls? Well, in other, in other words, let's go back to what I said earlier. In other words, we don't come to it because we have thought this all out and figured it out. Nor do we come to it because, because we are spiritually inclined to come to it on our own. In other words, Jesus is saying, no one can come. See, we read that and we say, well, God's only picked some, some that he's going to pick. The, part, the point is that nobody can come. Nobody can come to the understanding. That's what I want you to say. Nobody can come to the understanding of this unless God gives them understanding. That becomes a point. Unless God opens up our eyes, we cannot come. That's what he's saying there. Now, you say, well, is God limited in who he opens eyes? Well, that's, because, that's God's saying. I read elsewhere it says that God's will that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. So if that's the case, that tells me that God is reaching out to all people. We read this and, and want to put some sort of limitation on God. Well, God's only picked a few. But that, that's our, we put that in there. That's our thing we put in there. That's not what John, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying I picked a few. He's making the, he's making the eternal truth known to us. That when you come to God, when you come to Christ for salvation, you come there because God brought you there, not because you figured it out. That's the point that he's making here. Okay, well, I have another question. Can you also, with what this is saying, can you also, like, say you're witnessing or something to somebody, can you also say, like, you are the jury and God is bringing, as he's like kind of like a lawyer and he's bringing you the information, now it's up to you to decide with the information that God is giving you whether you choose to accept it. Or There's a whole lot of methodologies that you can use. The, po the point is that, that we understand... Through my eyes, can you use that? Sure. Okay. So, I mean, I, there's a whole lot of ways. And, and that's what... That, I always say that to people. They say, well, you know, you, we got to take the... Four spiritual laws is the only way. Or CWT is the only way. And, and, we, and we take these courses on... And, and someone tells us it's the only way really to reach people. And... and, and, and if you witness, sometimes you'll witness somebody and all you do is maybe just read a, a verse to them. One verse. Maybe you just share your testimony. And maybe, maybe use analogies like that. The, the, the point is, it's not our place to convince them however we do it. We need to trust that God brings them. Because God is the one that opens up people's eyes. And again, we go back. Cliff, go ahead. I hate to mess this up. But... <laughs> uh... No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws me, okay? But, you know, that's Jesus' words. Then you go over in John, and he says, But when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all oh, man. men mm -hmm. to me. And I think this is where the Calvinists don't read the whole Bible. I'm just honest. All men. And I think the cross was his drawing. If we look to the cross, he says this. 
the point, uh, we can, here's what we can say. Again, we want to put this limitation on God when we, when we read a verse like that. Don't we understand that God wants people to be saved more than we want people to be saved? Why would he, why would he send his son to die on the cross and not want people to be saved? It doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense that, he, that it says that he came to die for the world. And, and John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, And Jesus is a propitiation for our sin, but not for ours only, but for the entire world. That propitiation means he is a payment for our sin, but, but not for ours only. But you say, well, does that lead to universalism? No, because there's a requirement to respond to the call of God where you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But, but I, I think sometimes, when we, again, we build up theologies and stuff like from our view. So we put limitations on God in every way we do. Let's just be honest. In every way, I put limitations on God. Right? We do. Just be honest. We put limitations on God. And sometimes we read it and say, See, I told you, limited atonement. Because it says so right here. No, you say it says so right there. It's not what it says right there. What it says right there is, the only way that for anybody to be saved is that God calls them. And you know what God's about doing? He's about calling people to salvation. And what, you know what he's done, allowed us to do? What a great privilege. He's allowed us to join him Amen. in sharing that gospel with other people. All right. So but that's why it gets a little bit deep here and people go, woo. You know. So um, anyway, so um, verse 46, he says, Not that anyone has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. And, and Jesus, again, knew what he was saying here because, remember, he says, I came down from heaven. So he's again, now he's claiming I've already told you I've come down from heaven, and none of you have seen God. Nobody's seen God except who? Except he who's come down from heaven. He's the one who's seen God. Well, let's close this out. Verse 47 through 48. Two verses. says, Those who believe, biblically believe in the incarnate Christ have eternal life. We've already said this, but, it, but, he, but he restates this again. He says, he says in verse 40, 47, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Now, either he was the, the biggest braggart that anybody that ever lived on the face of the earth, or he was the most delusional individual that's ever been on this earth, or he claimed something that did not belong to him, deity and, and perfection and stuff like that, or he is exactly who he says he is. And in the interest, I think it's interesting that before he went to the cross, he makes these statements. If you believe in me, you'll have everlasting life. Again, we go back where he says to, 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 to the sisters of, uh, of Lazarus when he died, he said, He who believes in me, if you believe me, you will never die. Over and over again, particularly in the Gospel of John, John draws us to who Jesus Christ eternally is and what Jesus Christ has done for us. So that we might know the assurance of salvation when we believe in him. Some people say, well, how do you know when the Holy Spirit is calling you? Again, don't make it too complicated. You have a desire in your heart to put your trust in Jesus. Guess what's going on? You want to, put, you want to trust Him? You want, to, you, you want to put your faith in Him? Again, you didn't come up to that on your own. That's the point. You didn't come up to that on your own. You have that desire in your heart to put your faith and trust in Jesus. That tells you God is working in your life. That God is drawing you. That God is revealing to you that which you could not come up with on your own. That's the point of what Jesus is trying to say here. But then he returns back to that statement, I am the bread of life. And, and, he, and he prefaces that, that second time saying by saying, the ones who believe in me, 
they have everlasting life. I'm the bread of life. What's that mean? Well, you go back up again. You say, he who eats me will never hunger again. And he, you see what he's saying? I am eternally what you need. I am the bread of life. Jesus is everything that we need. John affirms that in this passage right here. It was so difficult that the religious people couldn't get it. I'm convinced in the 30, almost 35 years of ministry now, the hardest people to reach are religious people. I'm not talking about born-again people. I'm talking about religious people. They're the hardest people to reach. They already got it all figured out. They've already got their way of thinking. And what Jesus had done ever, ever since he walked on the earth is he, he, he has interrupted, invaded, and, and made those who already have the religious way of thinking mad. Because he didn't fit into them. He called them to, to himself. As I said earlier, he didn't call them to a religion. And he didn't, call, he didn't come to be added on to someone's already preconceived religious ideas. He came to call us to himself. I am what? The bread of life. Those who come to me will have, ultimately, everlasting life. That's the promise of Christ. That's the reality of who he reveals himself to us. That's the impact of the fact, one of the impacts of the fact that he is the great I am. And he can only say these things because he is the great I am. Because no mere man could make that statement. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for the sharing that's gone on. And thank you for your word. Lord, just pray that, that, that we, as we've talked about these things and we consider these things, even as we leave this place, we continue to consider these truths. That your Holy Spirit will be our teacher and give us understanding. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much, for sending your Son. Thank you, God, that, that your desire is for all men to be saved. Thank you that you're, you're busy revealing yourself in the lives of men. And thank you for the fact that when we couldn't come to you, and we, there wasn't any way possible for us to understand that you and your grace and your mercy, you came to us. And you, you, you let us understand. Thank you for that. Now, Lord, help us to walk as a people who believe this week that Jesus is the bread of life, that he is everything that we need. Nothing else needs to be added. But we put our full faith and trust in him as we walk as your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we're going to have to get the air conditioner looked at. Yes.